0: Our next reading comes to us from the book of Revelation, the third chapter, beginning with verse number 14. Listen once again to the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door, knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, for those of you who are joining us for the first time today in person or online, we have spent this summer asking one primary question, what does it mean to be church? And as our guide, we have been working our way through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation and we wrap up that series this morning. One word has surfaced above all the other words in our study of Revelation 1 through 3, and that is witness. What does it mean to be church? Our central vocation, our primary calling, our pivotal purpose is to bear witness to Jesus Christ in the world. That is what we do as church. I've been wondering this week, but what does that mean? What what kind of witness? What are the elements of a faithful witness? And considering what John says to the seven churches and considering our unique context, it seems to me that there are four elements of a faithful witness. I would like to review these with you quickly before getting into what John is saying to the unfortunate church in Laodicea. What are the four elements of a faithful witness? One, it is biblically grounded. As Presbyterians, we know this. It might be important for us to talk about our feelings of church or experiences of church. I have many experiences I like to discuss. But when it comes to asking the question, what does it mean to be church? We in the Reformed tradition will not settle for our feelings or our experiences. We believe that the Old and New Testaments are the authoritative witness to who God is and what God is about in the world. And so whatever shape our witness might take here on the Upper East Side, we seek for it to be biblically grounded. Second, it would be intellectually rigorous. We are a congregation that appreciates intellectual rigorous study of our society and of scripture. We will not back away from issues, questions, problems that seem too problematic overwhelming, or controversial. Some of our brothers and sisters in faith, as you well know, will say that, well, Jesus is the answer. It doesn't matter what the question is, if Jesus is the answer. Well, there's some truth to that. But as Presbyterians, we know there's more to the story. We say that Jesus is not just the answer. Jesus is the question. Jesus is the one who comes to us again and again, asking questions of us about our witness, challenging us, comforting us, sustaining us, as Jesus does in these letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. We're intellectually rigorous. Third, I think in our context here, in light of Revelation one through three, a faithful witness would be communally oriented. Note again, that in his letters to these seven churches, John is not writing to specific individuals. And in our day and time, uh, we tend to think of faith in terms of uh, me, uh, myself. No, John is writing to communities of faith. Whatever kind of witness we have, no matter how we share the good news of Jesus' love with our neighbors, it must somehow involve the work of community, not just sporadic, separated individuals. That you know as well as I do that living in community, working in community, loving in community, serving in community is very very messy and difficult and problematic and can sometimes be very very painful. But we also know that when we stick to it in community and listen to one another and try to discern how the Spirit is moving in our midst we will also discover incredible overflowing joy and hope and meaning. A faithful witness is communally oriented. And finally, I would say, I've been thinking about this the last two weeks, and I've not written anything on it yet, but it it strikes me that a faithful witness would be deeply authentic, genuine, real. We've noted how in his letters to the seven churches, John did not send one generic letter that was to be read in all seven. He spoke to each church individually and addressed and engaged their specific needs, their specific wants, their specific desires, their specific challenges, their specific successes, their specific failures. I've talked about this with you before, but we know from research that 65 million people have left the church. 65 million. If we step back and look at the various reasons that have been cited for this departure, I think we can narrow it down, summarize it with one reason namely, 65 million people failed to encounter an authentic witness to Jesus Christ. I firmly believe today that people are hungry. They desire, they long, they yearn for a faith that helps them understand what's going on in the world, to connect the disparate dots into some kind of meaningful pattern, to to know how to think about Christ and what's happening in our context. People, in other words, And this is true for me, and I think it's true for many of you. We, we, We don't want a faith that just rests up in our heads as important as that is. We certainly don't want a faith that just rests in our hearts as important as that might be. We want a faith that makes a difference, that makes an impact in the way we live from day to day to day, that influences our decisions, our attitudes, and our assumptions about life. Revelation 1-3 through reminds us that as a church, our calling is to bear witness, that is, to go into the world and share the good news of Jesus' love for all people with our neighbors here on the Upper East Side. And as we do that, a faithful witness would be biblically grounded, intellectually rigorous, communally oriented, and deeply, deeply authentic. Let's now pick up with what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea. 14th verse, chapter three. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. In Isaiah 65, 16, the prophet refers to God as the God of faithfulness. This is literally translated as God of Amen. Here, John identifies Jesus with God. Indeed, Jesus is the perfect amen, the one whose words and promises are true beyond all doubt. Jesus is also the faithful and true what? The word we again and again, Jesus is the faithful and true witness. It pops up a lot in these chapters. If we don't understand that witness is the key, the core, of what it means to be church, we're missing the point. The Christians in Laodicea missed the point. They just didn't get it, and Jesus, through John, unleashes a harsh torrent of criticism. I don't even want to read these words again because they're just so, so harsh, but I will. I know your words. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Do you think these words got their attention? Can you imagine Jesus writing those words to us here at Madison Avenue? I'm glad I am not a member of the church at Laodicea, but that we, he, we are here at Madison Avenue. Laodicea. Had lousy water. Its mineral content was so high that it made the water nauseating. Jesus is saying that, yes, he's nauseated too, but not by the water. He is sickened by the tepid witness of that congregation. They're neither hot nor cold. They have a lukewarm faith, a half parted faith. They are content to straddle the fence, and Jesus lashes out. Can't you have some passion one way or another? Why do you play it safe all the time? Can't you get excited about what I'm doing in the world in your very midst? And if you can't get excited about that, what can you get excited about? The church in every age has been tempted to domesticate Jesus, to recreate Jesus in our own image. And that is true of the church today. Ask the American church today in our country, who is Jesus? And many, not all of them, But many of them will say, well, Jesus was a nice person. He was a good teacher, and his primary mission was to come and make my life meaningful and to love me through all eternity. Jesus, in other words, primary mission is to take care of us and help us feel good. Um, Do you see Jesus and Laodicea working to help them feel good? No. Do you see him striving to meet their needs? No. Jesus is fed up because they're spending so much time tending to their needs that they're not tending to his needs. They are not faithful in his work and his agenda. As a matter of fact, he is so worked up about their self-centeredness, their apathy, their indifference, that he threatens to spit them out of his mouth. Is that a graphic image or what? Jesus' disciples lying on the ground, all slimy with Jesus' saliva. Yuck. But Jesus is just getting started. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you. To buy for me gold, refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you, and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Laodicea is very, very wealthy. Maybe not on the level that we enjoy wealth today for the most part in the developed world, but still they were very, very wealthy. Remember when we talked about the earthquake of AD 17 and it destroyed the city of Philadelphia and then with imperial subsidies, they rebuilt the city of Philadelphia. That same earthquake destroyed Laodicea, but they proudly refused imperial aid and they rebuilt it out of their own resources. They were a prosperous prosperous people, successful people, Self-sufficient people. But Jesus throws this all back in their face. Laodicea was the center of banking and commerce. But Jesus says, no, you're poor. Laodicea was known for its medicinal eye salve. But Jesus says, no, you're blind. Laodicea was known for its beautiful raven black wool. But Jesus says, no. You're naked. Jesus is saying, instead of trusting in your own gifts and strengths, instead of relying on your own wealth, instead of trusting in your self-sufficiency, get your treasures from me. Here, here's my white robe. And what have we learned about the white robe? The white robe signifies what? Somebody said baptism. They had, someone just had to have said baptism. It was mumbled, but I heard baptism, right. The white robe signifies baptism. You belong to God. Jesus says, here, don't use the eye that you have. Here, use my eye And your eyes will be opened so that you can see who God is and what God is about in the world. You will be able to see the kingdom in your midst and the opportunities you have to know and serve God. Make no mistake about it. As we have said before, John is the harshest writer of the New Testament. And he is holding nothing back in his letter to these seven churches. Jesus is angry. Angry because they have abandoned their witness. Angry because they are not living up to to his expectations angry, that they're living more for themselves and their needs and their agenda, rather than Jesus' needs and Jesus' agenda. Even so, there is grace. Even so, as angry as he is, as disappointed as he is, Jesus says, I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. A couple of weeks ago, we described how God's love and grace, justice and grace come to us like this. God wraps God's arm around us to tell us the truth of our lives about justice in the world. And at the same time, God is saying, but I love you, and lifting up grace and acceptance and love. The church has a way of tearing these apart so that some churches, all they do is complain about their congregation. Complain about the world. Lament this. Lament that. You're bad. And other congregations go in the opposite extreme. You're wonderful. You're loved, and you can do no wrong. God loves you. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to prosper. Both our distortions. As we see in John's letter to the churches in Asia Minor, God comes to us like this, and in a position of love, lifts up to us our challenges, God's disappointments, the truth about how we let God down and let one another down. Jesus' anger and stinking criticism in his message to the church in Laodicea, as well as the other churches, flow from a deep reservoir of love. He really cares for this vain and materialistic congregation. He wants more for them. He expects more from them. He has a passionate desire for them to be who they're called to be, the body of Christ. The very people of God who have been entrusted with this remarkable good news of God's love. When I was first ordained in ministry, I served two small country churches. And the smaller of these two churches did not have a bulletin when I arrived. We started printing one about a year later after I got to know them a little bit better. But for that first year, we had no bulletin. So there were no communal prayers. And everything pretty much came from me. That included the call to worship. I love responsive calls to worship, but we didn't have a bulletin, and they didn't know some biblical responses. Uh, Like, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. One of the biblical quotations I use quite often comes from Revelation 3.20. Some of you will remember it. Listen, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into them and eat with them and they with me. And I love this text. I used it week after week after week for it seemed to me so open and gracious. There God is, Jesus is outside our door, wanting to come in, wanting to have a relationship with us, wanting to love us and strengthen us. But if I had to do it over, I would never use that text. This is not a text that calls people to worship. This is a text that might leave us squirming in our views. This might be a text that leaves us feeling guilty or ashamed. This might be a text that brings tears to our eyes, but it is not a call to praise God. In their fascinating commentary on the book of Revelation, doctors Gonzalez and Gonzalez raise an interesting question. Revelation is addressed to God's people to God's church. Why is Jesus on the outside? Why is the door closed? We are Jesus' people. We are the body of Christ. What's Jesus doing on the outside trying to come inside? How did he get out there to begin with? This is another harsh challenge from John to the church in Laodicea. In other words, he's asking, How have you pushed Jesus away? What have you done to close the door in Jesus' face? How are you letting Jesus out? How are you pushing him away when you're thinking about your life and your service? What's he doing out there? He's the one who called you to be in here. Can you, can you imagine Jesus coming to us this morning and standing out there and knocking and knocking and just keep knocking at the door because Jesus wants to come in? And he's saying, if you open the door, I'll come in. And he's out there knocking. What would that say about us? That we left Jesus out there? So if I had to do it over again, I would not use that passage as a call to worship. This is what I would like to leave you with. We've been asking the question, what does it mean to be church? And what John says to these seven churches, he says to all congregations. He's inviting us to be faithful witnesses for Christ in the world. And particularly in his words to the church in Laodicea, he's asking us to consider how might we be leaving Christ out? How might we be neglecting Him and His work? Are there any ways that we here get so caught up in our own agenda that we neglect Jesus' agenda? How is Jesus knocking at the door today? Jesus is knocking at the door of all congregations. What is the unique way that Jesus is knocking at our door calling us to be His witnesses in this time and in this place. Amen.